To make your kiss incomplete I wanna talk to you When life reaches out and takes you Welcome to British Trap by Trap presents Steve and the Classics. Today we're going to be talking about I Want to Talk to You from the album Where I'm Coming From, released on the 12th of April 1971. On the track we have just Stevie Wonder. Uh, the track, of course, is co-written as all the tracks are on this album by Cyrita. Um, the track is 5 minutes 18 and joining me to talk about today is Ollie Brady. Hello, Ollie. Hey, Darren. Um, now, this track's quite... Track by Track presents Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Mediocre songs is what the name of this podcast should be. Well, I I mean, I think that this... this I mean, you probably then agree with the review from Rolling Stone of, about the, the first couple of albums then. Um, you know, <laughs> he, he was not particularly keen on them. Uh, this track's kind of interesting because out of all the... You know, this, this was basically the final um, album released under Stevie Wonder's old contract that was signed when he was like nine years old. Um, and basically he had a clause where when he got to 21, he could do one of two things. Either he could negotiate for a new contract or he could just void the current contract. And then from 21, he'd be free to go wherever he wanted. Uh, it's worth noting this that this album was released about three weeks before his 21st birthday. <laughs> so it was, you know, keeping it close um and it, it within it like the, the this particular song has this kind of interesting thing where stevie decides to do a couple of characters um yep and he alternates between the verse and the chorus uh where in the verse he's he's kind of it's kind of slow and he's kind of talking about his life um when he i mean he opens by standing saying standing here on my own side waiting for the floor um, so, like, he's basically making it clear that Stevie Wonder is, you know, on on his own and he's looking to kind of, you know, maybe uh, discuss something. Um, and then in the choruses, it goes into uh, what I think is meant to be a kind of approximation of the classic uh, Richard Pryor white guy voice. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say. It's Stevie Wonder doing a bit and yeah, whoever he's meant to be impersonating. I think you mentioned it earlier that it's his um it's his manager his old manager it's meant it's not meant to be exactly Barry Gordy because obviously Barry Gordy isn't an old white guy but it's meant to just be a record executive like it's meant yeah. to be you know the owner of you know if we imagine that both are characters it's the person that owns the label that this other character is on yeah and that is meant to be the kind of discussion that's going on is you know the one person is saying you know I want to be able to kind of you know feed myself and you know <laughs> and kind of make a living and the other person is like you know I want to talk to you and kind of saying to him like, like everything that you think is not correct and basically you know you're, you're lucky that I'm allowing you to make money and all that kind of stuff and that's that's kind of what he's setting up uh, there's even a, a, a kind of a line later on that's that's kind of improvised where Stevie Wonder says I'm going to take my share which is kind of like <laughs> you know making it clear now it's worth saying as well when Stevie Wonder did renegotiate his contract he got 15 million up front Ooh. to make his album in 1971 Yes, in 1971. Oh. And he also got um, something, I think at the time, Motown basically didn't give you royalties. Um, so, well, they gave royalties to their main artists, but they didn't give them to the, you know, the backing bands that they used and stuff. Um, so he ba he basically negotiated himself a higher percentage of the royalties than anybody else on the label. Um, and then he also negotiated a clause, which means if Motown is sold, they have to consult Stevie Wonder on the buyer. 
Um, wow. So the label, the label cannot be sold out from underneath him, basically. Um, the contract, I think, was... I, they, I mean, it, it, it was said to last, like, seven years. Uh, but that was on the that was on the understanding that he would deliver an album a year during those seven years. So effectively, it was like a seven album deal, basically. Yeah. Um, so it would kind of and because Songs in the Key of Life is a double album, that counted twice towards the deal. So effectively, it covers from now until Songs in the Key of Life uh, from the next album, should I say? Music on my mind is the first album of his new contract. Um, and the, I think the last album officially on that contract is um, Stevie Wonder's Journey into the Life of Plants. Um, but um, you know. Th- like from that point on, he'd already renegotiated the you know a new contract. Darren, uh, it, uh, was it common for artists to have contracts for an album a year or more? And the reason this is is popped into me is I was chatting with somebody there recently about um, Elton John's late sixties, early seventies run, which yes. is mostly forgotten. It, it's like it's like people seem to hit into the seventy five to 85 is like peak Elton John and a lot of people just kind of disregard the stuff like there are there are like every album might have two songs which people love or whatever and like tiny dancers from that that era or whatever but I went and I was like I was saying to this person was like you know he had quite a few albums I think he might have had five or six albums in that time and then I looked it up and he from 1968 to 1974 he had nine albums yeah. and now you're telling me Stevie Wonder had seven in seven years and I'm like was this just something that was happening when you compare like Coldplay I'll put out an album every seven years and you know it won't be very good sorry Coldplay fans but um but they'll still, they'll, yeah, people will be like oh it's the biggest thing ever it's the new Coldplay album whereas Stevie Wonder was cranking out fantastic albums at the rate of one to two a year well in yeah in 72 he did two albums but he also produced the album so rita for his wife so he actually put out three albums in 72 which effectively was the first full year of his contract um you know and he didn't put an album out in 75 um because uh, I, I i mean he was touring mostly basically during 75 yeah and then he started writing the songs for songs in the key of life and that came out in 76 um, yeah. yeah so but the, the funny the funny thing is like the, like the contract was unheard of like at the time interestingly enough like the contract was more than like elton john's contract like that was like, oh, yeah. the last big contract and this was like way more than Elton John was getting. And in fact, if if Stevie Wonder delivered an album a year on this contract, plus he met sales figures, the contract basically doubled. Oh wow! So before the end of the seventies, he had made like at least thirty million just from the contract. That's not including any royalties he got from sales. It's just it's um, insane to me that back at the time, that's the kind of money. Like, I I don't know the exact figures of it, but the Beatles weren't getting that sort of money in 71 like they just it just wasn't even remotely in that ballpark figure like so stevie wonder i he must have he must have had the best lawyers or the best managers or whoever was doing the work for him because that dude got himself paid yeah well I, the, the the fear the fear from motown was basically that him or marvin gay were gonna leave that was like the big thing like they had these two big artists and it was like both of them are gonna leave and keep in mind this is not like Stevie Wonder's like first album. This yeah. is like his 15th album and he hasn't even turned 21. <laughs> so like while he was under like Motown's full control, he was he was turning out two albums a year. Um, That's crazy. And 
he wasn't allowed to record the songs he wanted. He was basically forced to record half cover versions and he was allowed to kind of co-write some original songs, uh, which, you know, when you're talking about a 10 year old, fine, that makes sense. But by the time he's like 15, 16 and he's been doing it for a while, it's like, well, you know, some of the songs that he wrote were really successful. So it's, it's like, why are you not letting the guy write more? Um, but Barry Gordy wanted to maintain a tight control over both him and Marvin Gaye. And they both basically ended up negotiating themselves, uh, you know, really good contracts based based on the fact that, I mean, Stevie, this album didn't sell huge, but Stevie Wonder could have gone somewhere else. And that was the thing that Barry Gordy kind of feared. Um, and around this time as well, you know, he kind of got into a dispute with the, the Jacksons um, and they basically left Motown. And, you know, at the time they were like the best selling group that they had. Um, and then they changed their name from the Jackson Five to the Jacksons in like a, a legal move. Um, interestingly, they sang back up on one of Stevie Wonder's songs on um, on Talking Book. I think he literally just had the Jacksons come in to do backing vocals, and all they do is sing doo wop. That's literally all they sing, just those <laughs> words. Um, so that shows you how powerful Stevie Wonder was. Good old Stevie. Um, yeah. So, but I mean, I think like the kind of the, this kind of he has this kind of very kind of like kind of slow piano-y kind of verse and then he kind of speeds it up i think you know there's a lot of kind of echo and reverb and stuff on here and it's kind of, i mean you know the the review of you know from rolling stone which you know i've alluded to on a few of these tracks by vince letty he kind of criticized wonder for having too much kind of production tricks and kind of over producing all these songs um and you know he that's the kind of main thing he didn't like about this album or the next album by the time it got to talking book vince Letty was kind of like okay i guess stevie wonder's good and then he kind of <laughs> softened his stance just a little bit on stevie wonder you know once he started winning uh, album of the year grammys every single year but i don't know i mean i think this is kind of more of a novelty song because like you say it's it's this kind of thing of stevie doing the the kind of this these weird kind of bits um you know and he like he has this thing where he says you know uh, got a woman that loved me, feed me beans every night. Twelve babies look at me with those big, grey, hungry eyes. You know, so it's like that's not Stevie Wonder's life. He's a twenty-year-old. He's you know he's not married yet. He will be married very soon, and then divorced quickly after that. Um, so like he, you know, he like he's kind of like the the, the characters he's just talking about here are deliberately exaggerated. So this this kind of like you say this kind of weird white guy voice that he's insisted on putting on. Uh, which I think is probably a way to make it so that people don't think it's very gaudy, because obviously if he did, if he'd have done a kind of, um, I mean, even his white guy voice strays into kind of Ray Charles basically on some lines, um, and I think if he'd have done like a straight up kind of Berry Gordy impression, I think I don't know that Berry Gordy would have let him keep continue <laughs> negotiating a new contract, um, you know. But he can kind of play this off as oh, it's not Berry, it's somebody else. Uh, <laughs> but he, you know, he still couldn't resist ad libbing. I'm going to take my share. As I was as I was listening to it earlier, I was saying there was ticket to myself. I was going, I'm going to have to come on and and talk about this song. And I, it's clearly, to me, it's clearly Stevie Wonder representing a black person and the person in the chorus even though stevie wonder singing it is representing a white person and um, there's lyrics like oh i i called you by your first name you know uh i i i let you meet my friends and stevie wonder's like i i haven't wanted to talk to you for two hundred and fifty thousand years i've been listening to you for two hundred and fifty thousand years like and i'm like yeah so it's there's a there is a message there which is the power has always been with the white guys and it's hard then as a white guy to come on and go I don't really like that song 
because it sounds like it's the like the message is is very clear and very pertinent. He's doing a nerd white vice, and this is the other realization that came to me is that I had a moment where I genuinely said to myself, "Is there any way that I can come on and impersonate a white nerd?" And for those people listening, I am a physics teacher who does podcasting in his spare time. And I genuinely questioned, would I be able to do the voice of a nerd? And I went, yeah, yeah, I think I got that covered. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think this whole, like he kind of talks about how, you know, you can have dinner with him next week after you mow my lawn. You know, yeah. I don't want to talk to you now. He you calls know, him like, boy a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think the thing is as well, like, you know, Stevie Wonder is not going to turn this into like a prior bit. Mm-hmm. Um but he's kind of verging on almost using certain words in the in the song, um, you know, particularly when he's he's like doing the white the white guy voice, um, you know. And I, I I kind of the thing that I kind of like about it, I think the kind of the you know the reverb is a little too much, and obviously the you know the impressions. I mean, I think even in nineteen seventy one were a bit corny, um, but you know this is this is a twenty year old kind of. The, on the verge of negotiating like the most lucrative contract in all recording so i i feel like his mind was probably elsewhere um in terms of you know like his like what he was doing that that year in particular um but i do think like just this sentiment of you know the, the someone calling him boy and saying you can't do that and, and like trying to stop him from doing the thing that basically is making him money and also making the guy that owns the label money um you know and like the weirdest thing about motown was it had these kind of infamous like backing bands um like the funk brothers and yet berry gordy never gave credit so he would like on the labels it'd be like oh marvin Gaye and the funk brothers but the funk brothers consisted of like up to 60 different studio musicians <laughs> and he never put them on liner notes so you you can't know who was playing what instruments on what tracks because Barry Gordy didn't want to give them credit. He, it was just like, oh, it's a Motown record. You know, the place they recorded everything was called Hitsville, USA for a reason. Um, you know, and when they moved to L.A., the musicians found out by a note on the studio door that literally said, you're fired to like 50 musicians. And they didn't even realize that they were moving. Like, it, like so Barry Gordy was known for these ruthless kind of tactics, um, you know, and the fact that later on he would sue the Jacksons for the use of the number five. So they literally couldn't call themselves the Jackson five. They had to revert to just being the Jacksons. That's so brilliant. like, so I can kind of understand that, that Stevie Wonder maybe had some frustrations about the, the setup he's in and something that Stevie Wonder did, you know, from this point on, on his albums is have extensive liner notes detailing which musicians were on the tracks, um, which for this album is pretty much just Stevie Wonder. So, you know, didn't need to be that extensive, but in future <laughs> on future albums, like listing every single musician on every track, just became something that Stevie Wonder insisted on because he wanted to give people credit. But also, once they were credited, Motown had to pay them money. Well, that's the other sold. thing I was going to ask, Darren, is um, where other artists. So this this sounds like Stevie Wonder made a stand. Now he obviously made fifteen million for himself and a random saxophonist in the background of an album on songs in the key of life is not going to make the same equivalent amount of money. But as you said, he's going to get paid and he's going to get a small amount of royalties or whatever. Did any other artists make the same stand? And do you know if the background musicians, you know, the, the Funk Brothers or whatever, did were they appreciative of Stevie making the stand for them? Or well, was it just kind of like, well, thanks, bro, but I mean... 
you're you're still making 15 million in the 70s which is actually going to be 30 million when you know all said and done the 15 million was his advance so he still had to use that to pay he had to use <laughs> that to, love it, like. he had to use that to pay for studio time and stuff so and then he had to tour as well to kind of the way because obviously the way advances work he still had to tour to pay some of that you know some of the costs of the of, of the studio time as well but yeah i mean the problem is of course literally by the time the next record is released the funk brothers have basically been dissolved and you know yeah. then you've got like the wrecking crew and stuff like that who and again like that the, you know they were like they were just kind of you know studio musicians but they did start to get credit and once you've got credit then you've got to get paid and that's i think that's obviously you know some of those some of those are you know um studio musicians i mean obviously this is something that we can see in the film um uh was it inside lewin davis yeah where on on a hit record instead of him taking a percentage he takes a one-off fee for being in the studio and being used as a musician. And then, you know, that song becomes a huge hit and he's not getting any more money off it because he, he took the wrong deal, uh, which is one of the many mistakes that Lewin Davis makes in that film. <laughs> but um, It might you know, be the smallest mistake he makes in that movie. I don't know, because that song's meant to be huge. So mm. that's prob- like the amount of money he's not getting is probably quite big. Yeah, that's true. Um, but but that but that like give, getting people credit was obviously quite important in terms of you know like the way that the, the kind of the you know, musicians have been treated in the sixties and stuff, um, you know in particular like kind of any anybody who was in um, you know a session musician they they could be on hundreds of hits and get practically nothing for it other than you know like fifteen dollars for being in the studio on the day of recording. Yeah. Um, Damn. So I you that's... know. And when, Harsh. but the thing is as well when you say like random musicians like uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of really well-known musicians who end up on the next few albums you know working with stevie uh not least of which is ray parker jr no oh. um you know who's who, is, uh, who are you gonna session, call stevie session... you're gonna call ray parker <laughs> yeah yeah uh who's the session guitarist guitar being one of the few instruments that stevie wonder um never really kind of i mean he could play a few chords here and there but he was never good enough to kind of match himself on any other instruments so he never kind of put the the kind of tracks down um so i mean i would say this is like as it is it's kind of almost like a novelty on this album like there's a a couple of other songs on here that are more you know the kind of the stuff that you would expect from stevie wonder kind of in the late 60s kind of deliberate like three minute kind of pop songs in particular like the first single off this which is you know if you really love me like that's a kind of a complete kind of pop song thing um, you know, this is kind of like opening up side two of the the record, and it's it's you know the next couple of songs are probably more mainstream. Uh, this I I think in a kind of earlier era, this would be like a novelty record. Um, you know that Stevie would release uh, and people would kind of laugh at because it's so kind of weird and corny. Um, on the album, it does feel a little bit odd and kind of out of place. Um, but I, he wanted to make a point, you know, and and I guess it worked because. You know, he made a lot of money over the next decade. Uh, probably probably a reason why since like 1980, he's only released like five studio albums. Um, whereas the period leading up to that in the 60s, he released almost 10. So, you know, once once he made enough money, he didn't he didn't need to kind of keep that pace up. Um, so, I mean, I would say for me, it's still probably only about a three out of five because uh, it's one of the like out of this album it's probably the one of the two or three tracks that i don't really listen to that much you know there's at least three or four of the tracks on here i can think of that i probably listen to a lot more um, including like literally the next three tracks i would say are probably the best kind of running on the album well i'm, I'm glad your uh, future guests get to talk about them and listen to those tracks uh, <laughs> just for the people listening at, at home there um it's a it's a fun enough song 
the this the individual um I was gonna say the individual courses, no, the verses uh actually quite good. So the bit I, I really enjoy Stevie just sitting with the piano and playing. But then we get that just sitting there now there boy and <laughs> uh, which is a terrible voice I've just done. But um yeah. when he when he comes in with that stuff and he's trying to talk to himself through it and it just kinda <laughs> it's like I, I think you've gone for too much here, Stephen. Now, not it's far be it for me, Ollie Brady, in 2019 to tell Stevie Wonder one of the greatest musicians of all time. But you might have just pushed that envelope just a little bit too far. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like I say, it's probably like on this album. I mean, a lot of people don't don't kind of include this as part of the classic run of albums because it's the end of the previous contract, and he's not really producing everything in this in the same way that he will do for the next few albums. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's a nice bit of kind of honky tonk piano that he's playing, and you know, like just I I think that you know the idea of doing a character is something that probably if he'd have been under the guidance of Barry Gordy at this point, he would have said don't do that. But Stevie's <laughs> like you know, if either way from this album, either he was going to make the album he wanted to make and Barry Gordy was going to reject it and that was it, he was going to void the contract. Or he was going to make the album he wanted and Barry Gordy would then give him the same amount of creative control for the rest of, you know, the next contract he's got. And for, from Stevie Wonder's point of view, either way it worked. And, you know, he got to make the album he wanted. Hmm. Uh, and and the thing is, I think as well, like the chorus feels very much like Stevie Wonder. Uh, but some of the stuff in the verses has the feeling of uh, his wife because Sirita... Um, on some of the, the songs that you know are coming up in future albums after they've divorced and they're still kind of co-writing the odd thing you can hear her influence in the the kind of the lyrics being a bit more kind of poetic yeah and i think the verses feel a bit more like you say they're a bit more kind of structured and poetic and they kind of fit the kind of stevie wonder stuff whereas the choruses it just feels like stevie's like okay i'm gonna do this now yeah <laughs> so let's, like, let's have some well i mean yeah i mean i guess she's like okay then i i mean go for it i mean <laughs> like, who's gonna <laughs> say no you know at this point to stevie wonder um so yeah probably like just like a three out of five from me yeah, I I would be the same. Maybe maybe slightly more harsh, but then I said you you're probably coming at it as listening to an entire album, so it's one track amongst many good tracks. And I just came at it as I haven't listened to an album from I haven't listened to a track in this album in twenty years. It's been it, like genuinely, it's been that long since I've gone on a Stevie Wonder kick. So yeah. hearing this again for the first time because and peek behind the curtain we were supposed to record last week and and I had to cancel for you know family reasons whatever. And then hearing it again first for the first time in twenty years last week, and then hearing it again today, I'm like, oh, hmm, not <laughs> this isn't my bag. Um, but at the same time, I guarantee you that somebody who knows a lot more about music and how the piano is played properly and what sound is meant to, you know, what an instrument is meant to sound like is going to listen to this track and go, oh my god, he does such a wonderful thing here on the bridge into the second chorus, and you're like, oh. Oh yeah, I, I didn't notice that because I was too put off by that. Like, <laughs> uh, well then, let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug on? Yeah, I'm I'm no longer uh, podcasting, but you can go back and listen to any episode of Best Acquaintances, which is the podcast I used to do. Um, or uh, I still technically uh, <laughs> I'm a guest host on uh, Media Evil, uh, a medieval pop culture podcast. Uh, so Sarah F. Decker is an expert. She's a, a PhD. She teaches in an American college on medieval history. And she does a podcast where she rips apart 
medieval set movies and TV shows. And when I say rips apart, she rips those damn things apart. And it's quite a sight to behold. And I used to do a regular guest stint on it. And, you know, every now and then I'll come back for a guest episode too. So listen to Medieval. It's a genuinely good podcast. Even the episodes without me on it. And for this project, you can find us on Twitter at Stevie Y Wonder. Thanks for being my guest here today. Always a pleasure, Darren. I can't wait to come back and talk about a good song. (laughs) Otherwise, (laughs) goodbye.